from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. I'm joined by 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Ted, another intense week of news, both locally and nationally, and we are going to be talking about that unprecedented uh, second impeachment of President Trump in a little bit. But first, I want to go local. We heard from Governor Raimondo, at least in Rhode Island, for the first time in weeks. You were inside the briefing. I was outside the briefing. More on that in a moment. And she addressed a question that you and I have been getting a lot over and over again. Uh, she said that she didn't have much interest in going to Washington, yet off she goes. Here's what she had to say about that on Wednesday. Now, I have been asked numerous times by members of the press if I wanted to go to Washington. And the truthful answer is I have never pictured myself in Washington. Uh, I have loved every minute of being your governor. It's the greatest honor that I, that I have had in my life. I was born in Rhode Island, um, and Rhode Island is and always will be my home. Uh, I was born here, my children were born here, I was married here, and um, Rhode Island will always be close to my heart, where I am from, and my top priority. Having said that, the truth of it is, we're in a situation as a nation that none of us ever imagined. And we are facing a dual crisis, a public health crisis and an economic crisis, unlike anything we've ever experienced. Certainly, the economic challenges ahead of us are like nothing I've ever experienced in my lifetime. So when the president-elect called and asked me to serve and really lean into this work of job creation and building back better at this moment of unprecedented economic uh, crisis and asked me to help lead through this pivotal moment in our nation's history, um, I felt that I had to say yes. That was Governor Raimondo at her press briefing on Wednesday. Uh, Ted, you like to point out she's a Yale-educated lawyer, and even <laughs> in her denials leading up to this moment where she was picked as a cabinet secretary, she worded uh, her, her answers very carefully. But look, you talked to enough people that are close around her. Was this as tough a decision as she just billed it? You know, I, I go back and forth a little bit. Um, certainly, you know, the governor has always been, like most people who get to the level of politics she's at, ambitious. And to be asked to join the president's cabinet, especially when you're looking at your final two years of your term, not sure yet what you're going to do next. I always thought she would have a lot of trouble turning down a cabinet position. That said, I, I did hear it was a struggle to get to Yes, for her. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Governor Mundo has dominated Rhode Island politics arguably for about a decade now, and she's pretty confident in Rhode Island politics. She knows her way around. She's now going into a world with a lot of stuff she's never hackled before. She's going to be dealing with world leaders. She's going to, you know, Canadian lumber tariffs. What does she? How much does she know right now about <laughs> Canadian lumber tariffs? You know, and all the rest of that. So, I think there's a natural nervousness there about what she's taking on, especially during a crisis like this. And certainly, there isn't. A, you, you heard, I think, a little emotion in her voice. I heard that about leaving yeah. her home state. You know, her mother uh, is older and, uh, you know, she's not going to be here and around with her. Her children are, uh, you know, they go to school teenage, here. go to school here, all yeah. of that. So I don't think it was um, 
I don't think it was just an uh, easy, immediate yes. I am not surprised she said yes. You, was there a gap from what your sources were telling you the job was on the table for her and when we hear that, we heard, excuse me, that she took the job? Was there a gap? I do think so. I'm, I'm certainly, I know she was canvassing some other, you know, very prominent folks about what they thought she should do um, and all of that. And so I think, I think there was a little gap. But again, I don't want to be overly dramatize her having a Hamlet moment about this. I think once Biden decided to offer her a cabinet job, it was almost certain she was going to take it. Well, look, unlike past uh, briefings uh, where she would stick around to answer questions, Governor Raimondo did not do that this time. I tried to question her going into the vets. As I said, I was outside where Ted was nice and warm inside. <laughs> uh, and she told me, look, I can't talk to you. I'm late for the briefing. Um, so I, I waited for her to be done and tried to talk to her as she came out. And, and this is what happened. Senator, can you stop and talk to us for a second? Have you been told not to, Governor, by the Biden administration? Ted, I don't know if you heard it there when I said, can you stop and talk to us for a second? She said, I'm all set. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> respectfully, we're not. This clearly has a lot to do with her new national profile. But look, she's an elected governor uh, of Rhode Island, and uh, she should answer questions. We have a lot to talk to her about. Do, but do you think, as she was asked there by one of our colleagues at Channel 10, do you think uh, this is about the Biden team? I do. I think, um, I think she, I, partly because if you, you just need to look up I-95 at the evidence in Boston, where Marty Walsh, Mayor Walsh is the nominee for Labor Secretary, and he too shocked the Boston press corps on Thursday and did not take questions at his COVID briefing. Uh, and Marty Walsh always been loquacious. Uh, I know some of the Raimondo people were shocked at how much he was being open about the process of being looked at for the cabinet while she was being very quiet. Um, so I think, I think the Biden people don't want their cabinet nominees to say anything that frankly could make national news, let alone jeopardize their confirmation hearings, which I'm expecting to take place later this month uh, and getting, getting them done. But uh, that said, whether, you know, and I should say no one will explicitly say that. I'm just reading the tea leaves. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, as you just said, Tim, she's still the governor. He's still the mayor of Boston. Uh, we're in the middle of a COVID crisis. Vaccine distribution is a huge issue, and they are the chief executives. And so, you know, it's one thing if this process moves very fast and she's the only the governor for a few more weeks. I'm not even saying it's good then, but that's one thing. If this drags on to March or April, like Sheldon Whitehouse told me it could when I was talking to him earlier in the week, I think there's going to be real very strong pressure on these two and the Biden folks to let ease up a little bit. Yeah, but bit. do you think that pressure is going to ease up after the Senate confirmation hearings uh, at all? I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose at that point she's gone, right? Well, I mean, you could still somehow say something that, you know, turns the Senate against you. I think, look, it's going to be a Democratic Senate. Uh, the governor, of course, has had her controversies, but so far there's no sign of a massive, you know, backlash to this nomination from the right or the left. There are critics, but not anything right now that looks like a Democratic Senate would reject a Democratic governor mm -hmm. requested by a Democratic president. Um, so, you know, I think, I think a big question here is how long this interregnum before Dan McKee is going to last. If it's fairly quick uh, and there's nothing huge that bubbles up, you know, for example, if there was another Aquidneck Island gas outage or something, I hope there isn't, to our viewers yeah, on Aquidneck sure. Island, I hope and assume that the Biden people would, would you know, I hope she would tell them I have to do press conferences. Anyway, it's 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 uncomfortable as a reporter, whatever the re real politic is of this. But it's yeah. Let's pivot to the incoming governor, Dan McKee. He did answer questions in the most Rhode Island place of all time. He answered. He held a press conference at Cello's. Uh, we're getting a sense of what the McKee administration might look like. Ted, our colleagues, Steph Machado and Eli Sherman covered this news conference. And Steph asked him 
if he's going to make wholesale changes to his cabinet, to department heads? This was his answer. Well, I think that the first step is to we're going to be doing a conversation with all of them individually and give them the respect they deserve and then hear from them and, hear, and us and we'll make that decision based on those, those, those conversations. I don't expect a, a, a major turnover. I, like I said, we've had good relationships with department heads throughout the state of Rhode Island. They're not going to be strangers to me and I'm not going to be strangers to them when we actually sit down and talk. He doesn't expect to make changes there, but of course, Ted, department heads might leave. What are you hearing? Well, certainly everyone expects Commerce Secretary Stephen Pryor to depart. Uh, he is, I would say, he is the closest aide in the cabinet to Governor Armando. He mm -hmm. also is Rhode Island's Commerce Secretary. He'd be a natural fit to join her in some capacity at the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, I'm expecting that, though no one's confirmed it. Uh, we also know Health Director Dr. Alexander Scott for now is expected to stay. Um, McKee has said, the governor said she asked him, and he says he readily agreed to keep the current COVID response team in place. It was one of the first things he place. said. Exactly. It was the first real policy thing they yeah. announced uh, when the transition was, was confirmed. Um, and then other than that, you know, I think you'll see a range of, uh, things. you know, for example, they think of Brett Smiley at the Department of Administration. He has his eyes on running for Providence mayor and, and never seemed like he was going to stay long at the Department of Administration. And that's the type of job I would think that a Governor McKee will want a trusted, close ally and advisor over there at DOA kind of running the day-to-day -day operations of the government. So it'll be something to watch. He also, in that uh, news conference that you can watch on WPRI.com, he, uh, he was really deferential in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it, it seems that he's going to defer to mun municipalities on a whole range of issues, including remote learning. I don't think we're going to hear that fire and brimstone sort of reaction that we got from Governor Raimondo when a school decided to switch over to complete remote learning. He, uh, to quote, partially quote Dan McKee, he said, you know, they know what's best for their, their community. So I think we're going to hear that. And then he was really deferential, and this surprised me. Uh, this happened Wednesday when we were outside the vets talking to the governor. Uh, about his pick for lieutenant governor, and as it stands now, he could handpick the lieutenant governor, but he is deferring to the General Assembly about what process that should take. Did that surprise you? Yeah, the General Assembly one in particular. I mean, on the yeah. mayors, Dan McKee was a mayor. He was a mayor. <laughs> uh, he identifies with the mayors, even though he's been a statewide elected official now for six years. Um, I will be interested to see kind of, you know, is there a shift there or does he remain almost the mayor of Rhode Island and they're the mayors of their cities and towns? Uh, the General Assembly did, uh, and you could, uh, it was our former colleague Dan McGowan now at the yep. Globe who asked about the lieutenant governor pick to replace the McKee, his pick, and he said, well, I'm talking to the General Assembly to see, you know, kind of whose choice that is and everything. And look, I, I've covered around politics for a while now. Governors have to be careful. If you give the General Assembly an inch, they will steamroll you. Uh, you know, there are some people in General Assembly kind of, you know, thinking, ooh, is this going to be, frankly, Chafee 2.0, where we have another governor who is weak uh, relative to, you know, expressing his strength against the General Assembly, and we can kind of do a lot on our own, which wasn't, the, you know, they certainly got a lot with Governor Mundo, but it was sort of a prize fight every day for supremacy on the Smith Hill between <laughs> the governor and the legislative leadership. You know, she was never going to cede to them unless they had a fight about it. And so, uh, but again, on the other hand, it, it's such early days for Dan McKee. He understandably is not trying to make enemies before he even is the governor. And it, it, he, might, he might be, you know, feeling more deferential now because he's in between. There's still a different governor. Once he is the governor in place with his team, he may feel strengthened to sort of assert, uh, assert himself a bit more. Real quick uh, question here. You, again, he said he's thinking mid-February. He told us that on Wednesday. 
you're hearing differently from, from Senator Whitehouse's office. Right? As I said, yeah, Senator Whitehouse told me Monday it, could, la it took, could take until March or April for the final vote, and at that point, Governor Mundo would be actually confirmed as the Commerce Secretary. But I'm also hearing some folks say the Biden administration, incoming administration, is optimistic they can move it faster. I don't know what to think because, as we're about to talk about, I think, Tim, you also have the Senate is about to embark on an impeachment trial at the start of a president's term, which has never happened before. So I, I think there's more uncertainty around the timing uh, than there usually would be. All right. And you teed up our last segment here nicely, the impeachment trial. And the impeachment managers will bring up on the screen who the House impeachment managers on there. And you're going to see a very familiar face. Congressman David Cicilline was one of the impeachment managers. He co-drafted the article of impeachment, uh, writing that while the uh, chaos was happening at the Capitol. Once again, uh, Ted, you can add his name to the list of little roadie politicians who are on the national stage. He wasn't an impeachment manager for the uh, first go-around. Yeah, and they, yeah, you know, his, his advisors claimed he didn't mind, he was busy anyway, but uh, I think, uh, th you know, this has always been a prestigious appointment, uh, whether it's the Republicans who got impeachment manager when Bill Clinton was impeached or now with the Democrats. Um, and, you know, you can think of him almost as one of the prosecutors when this trial begins in the Senate. You know, people sometimes think impeachment is the same as conviction. Trump has been impeached again. The House does the impeaching, but that's like an indictment. And now he's been indicted, impeached in the House. The Senate is the jury. And so David Cicilline, as an impeachment manager, will be out front as one of them making the case to the senators why they should vote to convict. You need two-thirds of the 100 senators to convict. So it will be very high profile for him. I'd also say, Tim, Jack Reed's going to be making headlines in the next week because he has to decide whether to give another recently retired general a waiver uh, right. to lead the Defense Department right. for Biden, even though he said he didn't want to. And he's now going to be the top Democrat in that panel. So as you said, between a Commerce Secretary, uh, Jack Reed, David Cicilline, an impeachment manager, uh, it is a lot of people from a very small state who are going to have very high profiles in the coming weeks. All right, as we head to break, uh, I filed a story on WPRI.com about increased security in Rhode Island ahead of the inauguration, including at Congressman Cicilline's house, as you reported. Unfortunately, he has received death threats because of his national role here. When we come back, Rhode Island National Guard troops heading to the nation, nation's capital ahead of the inauguration. I talked to the general of the National Guard about their mission and the Guard's major role in the last year. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Earlier this week, we learned the Rhode Island National Guard was deploying some troops to Washington ahead of the inauguration. And look, this actually happens, believe it or not, every four years. But the mission for the Guard has well, a different tone this time around. And if you think about 2020, the Rhode Island National Guard has played a major role in this state, including with all the massive testing that has been going on. So the National Guard has been strained uh, during this past year. I spoke with the Rhode Island National Guard Major General Christopher Callahan about that deployment and his reaction to the chaos at the Capitol. How many National Guard members are going to D.C. and what is your understanding of the time frame? Sure. So uh, we're looking at, you know, around 75 up. Uh, that's sort of in development right now. And the time frame is over the, the next couple of days in terms of movement. And then depending on the mission uh, in and of itself, uh, I would assume they would be working their way back uh, the vicinity of Thursday next week. So the day after. The day after. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you said depending on the mission, you might not be able to answer this yet, but what is your understanding of what their role there is going to be? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a great question. I think what uh, we're looking at uh, in general uh, is, you know, some traffic control, crowd management, some level of security. Uh, we are sending down um, our uh, portions of our security forces squadron from our Air National Guard and are very talented in terms of uh, uh, the work that they do at our air base and, uh, and securing our aircraft and things like that. So we assume that they, they may have a specialty assignment, but we don't know yet. Look, you've been, uh, you've been doing this for a while and a while. been serving our country since the 80s, if I remember correctly, not, not to mm -hmm. age you, General. But no, it's okay. <laughs> did you ever imagine you'd be deploying you know, the guard or troops mm -hmm. down to Washington, D.C. to help protect a presidential inauguration? Sure. You know, so, Tim, what most people don't know uh, is that it's been done many times, uh, that, uh, that the National Guard in the District of Columbia is very small. So for the, the last 250 plus years, the inauguration has had some level of external support. So it's a, this isn't the first time that we've gone down uh, to support the inauguration. Of course, this is the first time that we've gone down with this level of publicity, concern, uh, and you know, essentially the, the atmospherics from the last week or so. But uh, it's not unprecedented uh, by any stretch. So when you say this isn't the first time we have gone down, you don't mean right. the Guard as a whole, you mean the Rhode Island National Guard, correct? I do, I do, and, and Guard Nation as we refer to it. But uh, yes, we, we have been there before to help. Well, and, and as you point out, it, it, this is being looked at through a different prism because of what happened uh, last week. And, you know, I was just wondering, as you were watching the video and the images of January 6th, mm -hmm. what, what was your reaction, especially for someone who has served this country for so long? Sure. No, I appreciate that. You know, I think like a lot of people, it, it took, took me back personally. And uh, it's, it's not where I am uh, as, a, as a military officer. Um, so I think, I think what's important to take away is that we continue to, to move forward uh, with a, you know, a, a smooth a transition of power as we, we can do that. And so we as a, as a team, as, you know, as the as the National Guard, feel very fortunate uh, in a different sense to be part of uh, completing this task, which obviously I, I think is critically important, a personal view of uh, how important it is to, to have a, a smooth transition of power. It means a lot to me and a lot to the team. Uh, you said there are 75 Guard members going down as of now. That's what you're right. understanding. Uh, just yeah. put that in perspective for me. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. How many Guard? members total do we have in Rhode Island? You know, in uh, just uh, north of about 3,000 that, that serve. Um, we have a little over 500 that are on orders right now that are supporting our COVID-19 response. So depending on, you know, you may see them in testing, you may see them in contact tracing, case investigation. So we have a, a really significant cohort of folks that are working uh, COVID day to day uh, in addition, we just brought home our 115th military police company from their deployment overseas about, uh, I guess, three weeks or so ago, and that was uh, 165 uh, folks. So it, it's been a very busy cycle. It, as it turns out, remember, uh, of our force, 
in a routine environment, about 700 or so are full-time. And the remaining, you know, uh, 23 plus are part-time and have dual careers and, and things like that. But over the last year-ish now, um, we've had a very significant presence here. So uh, we start with 75. We'll see what the, the task requires. And, uh, and we're just a bus ride away. You know, you, do, you brought up. The, the testing that you guys are so heavily involved with and, and forget about theaters overseas, uh, now heading down to DC. Um, is this one of the more active times for the Rhode Island National Guard in, in recent years in your experience? Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a very conservative uh, statement that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have the, the fortune of being able to kind of talk with, we call them the graybeards, but some of our alumni. And, and so we have a very good feeling that uh, we're, we're moving out at a, at a pace that they haven't seen before. But, but I would tell you that one of the major differences uh, for us, certainly over the last few years, is we've had super support from within the interagency. So I'm very lucky with my colleagues that, that work in government and, um, and I'm very government, uh, pardon me, very fortunate that our team in and of itself has a lot of different kind of talent and ability, uh, you know, to outreach. So I'm glad to see the maturity. Like we kind of laugh here and refer to doing all the things, um, uh, which again, when you think about it, it's really a compliment. We're, we're, we're happy to be here and do the work. The, uh, I just want to talk about here real quick. Um, yeah. Uh, what are you hearing about threats on state capitals and will the guard be going to the state house here in, in Providence at any point? Yeah, so no, a great question. And, and we're hearing uh, very similar to what you hear in the open source that there are some potential threats, you know, to the, the 50 capitals here within the United States. So um, I generally yield to, to Colonel Manny. Colonel Manny's got uh, the lead here and will over the next, and has been, I shouldn't say he's not just starting, but over the, the next uh, 24 to 48 hours, we'll be uh, working to develop, you know, sort of the interagency response plan. We're kind of leaning forward. I mean, I think that the short answer is I anticipate it, but uh, I, I do want to yield because our, our role, you know, I, I think, part of the beauty of the role is to be in support of and to be able to uh, help provide some stability. Um, but the expertise lies in our, you know, in our law enforcement agencies with Colonel Manny and Colonel Clements and Colonel Perry and the folks that have been in that line of work for a long time. So. I am. Um, I'm going to wrap up here with you, General. I know, sure. you're, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up because I think it's going to be something that, you know, our, our grandkids are going to see in, in the history books. Uh, you know, down the road, which is the images of National Guard members resting on the floor of the U.S. Capitol, you know, with, with their weapon yeah. right there. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's really unnerving for the general public to see U.S. senators and congressmen sort of weaving through all the Guard members uh, that are there to protect right. the Capitol. How about for you? Do, do you find it as unnerving as maybe the general public does? I, I think when I saw those pictures today, they strike me as um, very iconic pictures of soldiers. Uh, you see this throughout deployments that uh, you learn a couple of things. Soldiers uh, will do their job till they're exhausted, and then they have a unique ability to sleep 
just about anywhere. And so when I looked at that today, my first thought was, you know, to kind of smile because you sort of understand where they're coming from and what they've been through. Um, on the flip side, you know, it, it's not so much unnerving as it is um, unique. And it's a place that we didn't anticipate uh, to, to be in. Um, but I think nonetheless, it is, it is a, a job, a task uh, that we're, we're really working hard to embrace and, and, uh, and to get after in a manner that is humble, selfless, but gets the job done and, and does it in a manner that doesn't disrupt government, which is hard to do. In general, I, the training that Guard members receive, um, you know, it, does, that, does it just broadly apply to their mission down in D.C. in this case? Yeah. yeah. So I think, so a really great question. And I would say, the, you know, the overall answer is yes. Um, but we are fortunate that we do have different specialties. So as I mentioned to you sort of at the top of, of our discussion, our security forces, as an example, are very finely tuned uh, military law enforcement personnel. So I, I would envision potentially uh, them being placed in a, a position of, you know, that might need a higher level of maturity or a higher level of experience. But, but overall, uh, the organization uh, is, is sending down people that have, you know, have experienced some of the, the things that we went through over the summer and early June and, um, and have been in some type of uh, training in terms of civil unrest and some of the specialty training at, at a higher level. So I'm, I'm really confident with the group uh, that we're sending down um, and we're, we're sending a high quality uh, group of folks. My sincere thanks to General Callahan for taking the time to talk to us. He clearly has had a very busy year. If you missed any of that interview, it's on WPRI.com or you can subscribe to our podcast. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.